0: Hello and welcome to Being Well, I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, this is where we explore the practical science of lasting well-being. And if you've listened before, welcome back. Whether it's developing some new inner strength, fostering good habits, altering our behavior, maybe even understanding ourselves better or relating differently to the world around us, this podcast in many ways focuses on change, how we can grow and change for the better over time. So there's no lack of advice out there, change is hard. And one of my fascinations over the years has been how we can support people in changing in lasting ways. That's why I've been really looking forward to today's episode, where we're going to be exploring changing for good.
1: I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. So, Dad, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, and this whole topic is right at the center of my wheelhouse. So I'm really looking forward to learning from a world-class expert about it. Yeah, so today we have the pleasure of welcoming, as you said,
0: an expert in the science of change, Dr. Katie Milkman. Katie is a professor at the Warden School of the University of Pennsylvania, and her research explores ways that insights from economics and psychology can be harnessed to change consequential behaviors for good. She's been named one of the world's top 40 business school professors under 40, received a variety of awards, and had her work covered by NPR, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Harvard Business Review. She also co-directs the Behavior Change for Good initiative at the University of Pennsylvania. She's published dozens of articles in leading social science journals and is the author of the best-selling new book, How to Change, the Science of Getting from Where You Are to Where You Want to Be. And she's also the host of the popular podcast, Choiceology, with Katie Milkman, which explores key lessons from behavioral economics about decision-making. It's also a very well-produced show, and if you like this podcast, you'll probably love that one. So, Katie, thanks for joining us today. How are you?
2: Thank you for having me. I'm great, and I'm really excited to be here.
0: Yeah, I think this is going to be really fun. We were having a a pretty good time before we turned on the recording together, so I'm sure we'll just carry that right into it. (laughs) And I'd like to kind of start here, if you're all right with it, with just a pretty big picture question that I alluded to in the introduction. So particularly in terms of our out-in-the-world behavior, the day-to-day choices that people make. We've all had so many moments where we know we're supposed to do something and we just don't do it for whatever reason. Like often people, as you explore in your book, really kind of know what they should be doing, but it's still so hard to change their behavior, particularly in ways that sticks. So why is that? And maybe what can we learn from why it's hard that can help us sort of get better at change?
2: I love that opening question because I think why it's hard is, is sort of the question we often omit. That's most critical to answer if we're going to succeed. Mm. And in fact, it's kind of the lesson at the heart of my book and at the heart of my research career is that in order to succeed, we have to understand specifically what's holding us back. And it it is different in different Mm. situations. And that actually calls for different solutions. We want to match our solution to the obstacle we face rather than trying to use a one size fits all approach, which is what's often done and can often lead us astray. I have written about this in the book by breaking down some of the most common internal barriers to change that I've encountered and and seen addressed beautifully by research, sometimes my own research, but often other people's research. And so some of those most common barriers are challenges like the getting started problem, Hmm. that it's just hard to get over the hump, find the motivation to actually begin. You know you should change, but you keep putting it off. So how do we get started? Another barrier is that we're very impulsive creatures. We are present biased, meaning we overweight the value we get in the moment underweight the long-term rewards from our behaviors. So if it's not fun, if it's not instantly rewarding, we often don't do things even though we should. So that's another major barrier. And the flip side of that is, of course, procrastination. So Mm. because we're present bias, we procrastinate, which can be an obstacle to change. Another, I think, often underappreciated problem is just forgetting you could call it flake out, but you know, memory we often don't treat as a serious challenge, but it can be because if we just understand um, ways to ensure that we will recall what to do at the right time, we can overcome a lot of barriers to change. And then I've also written a bit about um, the challenge of our tendency to take the path of least resistance, that we follow habit and default settings. And so that can actually be a barrier to change, as can self-confidence. If we don't believe we can do it, we're unlikely to make much progress. And finally, a really important category of barriers that sort of bridges actually between internal and external, but we have more internal control over this than than some others is peer support. Mm. So Mm. do we have people around us or who we're paying attention to who are supporting our goals and showing us what's possible or are they actually holding us back? And so those are the key things i focus on in my book and frankly, also in a lot of my research. There are others, there are external barriers to change, but those are, I think, the most important internal barriers that we face Mm. time and again that can trip us up.
1: I love your focus on individualizing the matching of the change strategy, uh, which is the term you use, to the particular barrier. And you just gave us kind of a survey there. So I wonder if I could be a guinea pig here and, <laughs> and talk about something that I've struggled with over the years, um, which is regular weight training. So, I'm pretty good on the treadmill and I've learned on my own to do your, what do you call it, temptation bundling <laughs> or something? Yes. I mixed together one of my guilty pleasures, which is diving deeply into political Twitter while listening to rock and roll with ah. grinding away uphill on the treadmill. So, I'm pretty good there. But, oh, that weight training. Oh, it hurts. It's hard. The whole point is going to exhaust you and, you know, feel the burn, blah, blah. Okay. What could I do? I know rationally that it's good for me, cardiovascular health. My wife likes the looks. Oh, honey, you have muscles finally. Thank you. But me, uh, on any given day, it just seems easier not to do it. And Forrest would say I'm a generally fairly willful person, but this is something I've grappled with. Okay, Doc, help me. Help me, Obi Wan. Help me.
2: <laughs> Well, it sounds like you think temptation bundling isn't going to be a solution here, and that's sort of trying to make it more fun by linking the chore of doing the weight training with something that you crave, look forward to, and sort of only allowing yourself to do it in that context. Maybe that's not enough of a hook, but that I do want to note is one strategy we can use when we face this kind of a challenge where it's, ugh, it's dreaded, it's a chore, but I know I should do it.
1: Well, I'll I'll admit a guilty pleasure because we're taking the, you know... (laughs) the lid off here. So I find that watching political TV and feeling kind of aggravated by what I'm hearing helps to get me to pump that iron. I admit (laughs) it. But it also (laughs) aggravates the people I live with. So it's hard to get those little special moments. I know I could maybe sneak off somewhere, but we really only have one functional TV in our home. Okay, all right. Which is maybe one too many already. But anyway, (laughs) okay, so help me, doctor.
2: All right, well, it sounds like you might want to invest in an iPad and you can can watch it on that. So that's one possibility. That's a good idea. That's one possibility. That's actually a good A personal television. That one never occurred to me, honestly. (laughs) <laughs> okay, so we'll go with that as as option one, but let me get to another category of solution that sort of approaches this from a different angle, which is the commitment device, ah. which feels like it could be a, a useful tool for you here. So we've talked about making it more fun, so it's more instantly gratifying, and you dread it less.
1: That's what you call temptation bundling, right?
2: Yes, yes, okay. temptation bundling. There, you know, there are other ways to make things more fun, but temptation bundling is the one of literally linking something, doing them simultaneously. Yeah. The other approach, and that's sort of the carrot approach, right? We're we're putting a spoonful of sugar on top. We're making it. Now that was a confusing mixed mess <laughs> Mixed metaphor, the carrot and the sugar, but you get what I mean. We're making it more fun. We're giving a reason to do it. The alternative, of course, uh, is the stick. And that is can we make it more painful if you don't do it or more costly? And we're actually really used to it when other people impose penalties on us for misbehaving, like, right, you know, you'll get a speeding ticket, if you drive too fast, you might be tempted to, and it's more fun to go fast, but it's not good for you. And, and, you know, governments will fine you if you do that, or constrain you in some way. But what we often don't Think to do when it comes to our own behavior change, but research has shown can be a really powerful tool is creating similar constraints and fines so that when we're tempted to make bad decisions, we will Mm. face consequences. And basically, the price of our vice goes up. So, in this case, if you know that you dread weightlifting, but it's really important to do, you could consider creating what's called a commitment contract. You could put money on the line that Mm -hmm. you will forfeit. Maybe, by the way, you just mentioned that you get angry about politics, so maybe you should plan to forfeit it to a political organization you hate.
1: Oh, no, never. And that would motivate me. <laughs> it would motivate
2: you, right? So um choose a hot button topic and pick your poison. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, you're working it here. Okay, let me ask you a related question, which goes to my own interest in you know, neuroscience. It seems to me that one of the difficulties with a lot of good behaviors is that the costs are immediate and concrete, and the benefits are deferred and fuzzy
2: exactly, and
1: fairly incremental. And Often we are in a situation of sort of diminishing returns on investment in effect. Like, for example, when we start working out, we tend to get a good benefit early on, but then the relationship between effort and benefit starts fading. So it's harder and harder to stay motivated. And that initial reward, you know, dopamine based, et cetera, as you know, starts getting depleted and it doesn't motivate us as much. And, What would you suggest about that? I mean, I myself start thinking in terms of novelty, trying to bring more novelty to the experience, more of a freshness, beginner's mind to it, to get more of that dopamine thing, like, oh, this is the first time I've lifted weights, when actually it's not. But I don't know, do you have any suggestions about that? Yeah. Mismatch between costs and benefits and also diminishing sense of reward over time?
2: Well, absolutely. I think um, one of the beauties of temptation bundling is that if you link something that's a stimulus that doesn't get old with the activity that might become a bit of a chore and get to be a drudgery can really help with that exact issue, right? So for instance, if you only let yourself watch your favorite TV show when you're doing your weights, that TV show is going to be fresh every time, right? If it's a political- oh, excellent.
1: That's a great idea. Maybe
2: last week they were talking about COVID vaccines mm-hmm. and next week they're talking about what's going on in Haiti and, and so on, right? So you understand that there's gonna be that variety there. Mm. Another form of making it fun, by the way, is making something social. So we've mm. done some research showing that if you have two friends sign up to try to exercise more regularly, and they sign up together for a program where they're gonna get incentivized for exercise- and you pay them each a dollar every time they go to the gym, that actually doesn't work as well as if you pay them each a dollar only if they go to the gym together. Huh. It's harder to earn that incentive, but they exercise 35% more because one, they report it's more fun because you know, they could have figured that out. and just gone together, <laughs> by the way, but, but they don't have that appreciation <laughs> without you imposing it on them, and at least in this particular study we conducted. Yeah. And also they hold each other accountable. So mm-hmm. there's more cost associated with not going to the gym when you've committed to go because now you're letting someone else down and and that's not going to feel great to anyone. So mm-hmm. another way, and that creates also some more variety because every conversation is different with a friend, every interaction is different. So another, it's sort of a form of temptation bundling. In this case, you're bundling something social with your activity. and So I think that's another way you can do it. And, and finally, you know, we were talking about commitment devices, those penalties, they- <laughs> <laughs> they might feel old, but they're still going to sting. So I think that also helps. All of those tools should be able mm. to keep the, the pressure on to do the thing that you really want to do, even as it loses novelty.
1: Mm-hmm. This is great. Really flexible, smart. Great. Thank you. Definitely already a lot
0: of like great strategies and suggestions with it, maybe particularly for, uh, you know, my old man's desire to keep his heart functional, (laughs) which I appreciate. Now, I've got a lot of personal investment in that
1: one. So thank you for all of that. Um, Forrest, if you came over every day and worked out with me, (laughs) you know, I'd do it more. I, I'm sure it
0: would be a very effective device, but I don't know if I'm willing to commit to that one quite yet. So we might have to negotiate that one off air. But okay, okay. okay, okay. We're, we're already talking about like carrots and sticks here, right? Like positives versus negatives, ways to reward you, ways to punish you. And there's this moment that I think we've all had when we're chewing on taking on some new behavior, changing in some way, like developing a new habit. And there's kind of an energy to it. And it often feels like you're you're kind of on the balance beam and you're going back and forth with whether or not you want to kind of commit to this choice. And in that moment of choice, people are often motivated by those two different categories, right? They have their negative fears. My boss told me I should take advantage of the gym at work. And if I don't do this thing differently about my personality, I won't have any friends, whatever, those kinds of things. And then there are the positive hopes or aspirations. I'm really excited about developing this new habit. I am have a growth mindset, whatever. So two questions related to this. First, in that kind of moment of initiation, is there anything in the research that suggests what tends to motivate people to change their behavior more? And then, really importantly, over the longer term, does one of those tend to motivate people to stick with it better?
2: Great. And I love that you broke that down. So- yeah. There's wonderful research by Danny Kahneman and Amos Tversky. Kahneman won the Nobel Prize in part for this work that they did together. Tversky would have shared the Nobel, but he was, unfortunately, had passed away and they don't award it posthumously on um, something called prospect theory. So prospect theory is a model of human behavior that's been robustly supported by data that it has a number of different predictions, but one of the most important is that we overweight losses relative to gains. So if I fine you $20, that is more painful than giving you a $20 bonus is delightful. It's the short version of what loss aversion means. What that says and has been borne out by data is if you want to motivate someone, losses are more compelling, more motivating. Finding someone for an equal amount rather than giving them that bonus does propel change more effectively. But you also asked a really great question which is okay what about over the long run you said both what motivates us most in the short term and what is most motivating in the long run and i think there is at least some evidence that there might be a long-term downside to constantly exposing people to the stick or you know penalties one really interesting study looked at when a corporate wellness program was deploying incentives versus penalties to encourage behavior change and show that there was a stigmatization that came with the penalties that were applied over and over again that wasn't associated with bonuses. That, I think, hints at the challenge of using this really motivating tool repeatedly over the long run. Even even if it is more motivating, it has some baggage. It can also lead to backlash, um, shaming often makes people for instance really unhappy while it's effective it's a tool that it's hard to deploy if you want to have a relationship with someone and if you want them to feel good about themselves which is often a key goal yeah. so i think we have to keep that in mind it's unfortunate that this really powerful tool has this baggage associated with it and in general i think it's not an accident that you tend to see rewards programs at companies and um when there's a customer relationship and so if you're thinking about how to motivate yourself, Mm. there's a difference in that you're not going to impose stigma or have a negative relationship with yourself necessarily. So you might be comfortable doing something like using a commitment device and putting money on the line and finding yourself more comfortable than you would be doing that when you're trying to motivate someone else Mm. over the long run. On the other hand, if it's going to become a source of Stress and strain, you have to also think is it worth the added motivational benefit? So there's no such thing as a free lunch, I guess is the (laughs) short answer.
0: So to make this kind of really concrete, you gave an example in your book that was exactly along these lines where, and I'm going to fudge the details of this, so feel free to correct me, where essentially a mailer was sent out to per- prospective voters that was threatening to shame them publicly if they didn't vote by like releasing the rolls of everyone who participated versus didn't participate in this particular election. And what they found was that the more shamed the people were, essentially, the more exposed they were in their not voting— the more successful the effort was, like the more likely they became to vote. But then there was this enormous backlash to it afterward, like many angry letters were written. And as you say in the book, it's probably not a surprise that people haven't really tried to replicate this study because like, the blowback to it was so intense. Is that more or less correct?
2: Yeah, you did a really beautiful job of describing this. And oh, I, I should say, um, this always surprises people. And I think it's interesting. But, uh, It's a matter of public record whether or not you voted, not who you voted for. And so it's very feasible Mm. for political candidates to go and check and see, you know, did you vote in this election? Did you vote in this election? And by the way, this is one of the ways that they do targeting. when They're trying to figure out who to contact. um, Are you a likely voter? Is it worth spending money to try to mobilize you? Anyway, That's a whole other fascinating conversation, but it creates this opportunity to send out mailings and let you know, here's what your neighbors have done in terms of their voting histories, and to tell you, we're going to out you to your neighbors. If you Mm. don't vote, they're getting the same mailing. We'll update everyone after this election cycle. And again, it proved super effective to tell people, It, it was impactful to tell them just simply, you know, remember to vote, we're watching you and we can check and see if you voted. But it got more and more effective if you added in sort of, here's how everyone in your household votes uh, or has voted in the past. Sorry, not who they voted for, but whether they voted and we're going to update you. So if you were planning to, you know, lie to your kids and tell them you were going to the polls, (laughs) we'll out you. (laughs) Uh, And then again, it's even more effective if you tell people about their neighbors, they'll be added to their neighbors. So sort of the more you expose them, Um, the more you move their behavior, but they hate it. And so (laughs) this, I think, is a really clear relationship to that penalty challenge, right? And that stigma and that sticks work, But can we stand to be the one who deploys the sticks? And the challenge with political mobilization is normally, right, it's a candidate who's trying to get you not just to vote, but to vote for them. And so it's no surprise that candidates aren't eager to be the ones encouraging voting in this particular way, because you may vote, but for their opponent.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, it's a great point. And... I've got kind of one more question about sort of general behavior change approaches and strategies before we, we start turning the lens a little bit more internally and talking about psychological skills a little bit more. One of the points that you emphasize, not only in the book, but in original research that you've contributed to with this, is that our timing really impacts how likely we are to succeed at behavior change. And this is known as the fresh start effect. So what is it and why is it really important?
2: Yeah, and I should actually say, the jury is a little bit out on whether, how much timing affects success. Mm, mm -hmm. And I actually can't wait to, we're, we're still trying to figure that part out. What we have found is timing affects likelihood of beginning.
0: Starting, yeah, totally.
2: Yeah, so people are more motivated, and this probably won't surprise anyone listening to start towards behavior change, start pursuing their goals around New Year's, right? We've all heard of New Year's resolutions, about 40% of Americans make them. And that observation led my collaborators, Heng Chen Dai of UCLA and Jason Reese of Behavioralize and I to start thinking about whether there were other moments that had similar features to New Year's, other, we call them now fresh start moments, that give us a similar psychological perspective on what a good time it might be to change. So what seems to be happening with new years is we feel like we have turned the page, opened a new chapter in our lives, because we don't think about our lives as a continuum. Truly. We instead sort of think about our memories are organized in chapters. Mm, so mm-hmm. if you look back, you can say sort of, you know, these were the college years or the Boston years or, and so on, that's how we organize time in our memories. And what it does is it means whenever we feel like we're opening a new chapter, we can say, oh, well, there's this distinction. There's this clear breaking point. And I can say before that, that was the old me. Maybe the old me couldn't do it, but now I'm the new me and the new me is all over this. So that's a strong reason we think that New Year's resolutions are so attractive. We can sort of relegate, you know, I meant to quit smoking or start weightlifting last year and I didn't, but that was the old me and the new me is going to be all over it. And we see that people actually are more likely to create change, not only at New Year's, but at other fresh start moments on our calendars that have some a sort of similar new beginning feeling, like the start of a new week or a new month, following holidays that feel like fresh starts. So think more Labor Day and less Valentine's Day, and following birthdays, with the notable exception, one funny data set of 21st birthdays, where we actually saw that had the opposite effect. And I'll just let you think about why 21st birthdays <laughs> might not. It, it, was a, a, it was a data set we were looking at when people started going to the gym more frequently. And yeah, every birthday but 21st leads to more gym attendance. Wow, that's so funny. 21st leads probably to more attendance at a different venue, I'll say. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I wonder if we could look at situations when people are actually ambivalent about a particular behavior change. They have mixed feelings about it, rather than the bulk of them, as in my case, knowing really deep down that I ought to be pumping that iron, let's say. (laughs) But imagine someone who's debating whether to start dating again, maybe after a rocky breakup, or a person who's debating whether to stay in their current job, which is okay, but not great, or take a chance on seeking a better job that might be great. They're genuinely ambivalent inside themselves, Do you have any suggestions from your research or what you know about how people can help to establish a kind of fundamental clarity inside, which is sort of like an internal base, then from which they can start deploying these change strategies? Because deep down, they're convinced that, yes, indeed, I should make this
2: change. Yeah, well, in general, I think the research on heuristics and biases suggests we're biased against change. Hmm. We tend to um, stick to the status quo or creatures of habit. We do something called escalating commitment, uh, where we, if we have some sunk cost, an investment we've made, even if it's not recoverable, even if it shouldn't be included in our calculus about, you know, what's the best path moving forward? What are the costs and benefits moving forward? You've invested a lot in the job you're currently where you're currently working. Okay, so, but that doesn't really affect whether this new job would be better and would make you more excited each day to go to work, but you feel like you're gonna lose all that investment. And so that makes you more likely to escalate commitment. So those things are really working against us. And so I think then that raises the question of what can we do to sort of cut the ties? How do we uh, how do we de-escalate commitment, which is something I often talk with my Wharton MBA students about, in a class I teach on managerial decision-making. And the literature on how to cut the ties and sort of cut out escalation of commitment suggests a few things. One is that it can be helpful to talk to outsiders who don't have, for instance, the sunk cost, Mm -hmm. having those kinds Mm -hmm. of conversations and getting advice from, from people who may not have the attachments, may not be the ones who have to wrestle with your status quo bias. That can be helpful. That when we make decisions in groups, Rather than in isolation, we're also less likely to escalate commitment to a current course of action. Um, So I think those are a couple of tools that might be useful in thinking about how do we make the best possible decisions. And I just think also learning that in general, we tend to under invest in change and under experiment and that people in research Mm. who get a little nudge towards change, there's evidence suggesting they're actually a bit happier in the long run. Probably, because of this tendency to drag our heels and change too little when we're faced with an opportunity to do so, so maybe those things combined could be um, useful
1: that's great, and so going a step further, then thinking about the kind of issues that a lot of people have, which has to do with other people, so if there are the kind of behaviors that a lot of people would like to develop more of or do less of, either way, it's a change. It's not so much about lifting weights and stuff like that or not eating so many cupcakes, but being able to, let's say, assert themselves more with others if they feel inhibited in that way, or on the other hand, maybe learning how to dial back some of that angry assertiveness that's getting them in trouble at home or work. And so I wondered if you had any particular things you could say about, helping people shift interpersonal behaviors?
2: Yeah, it's a really wonderful question. And, you know, I'm going to go back to my sort of favorite way of thinking about change, which is to understand what is the obstacle um, before trying to give advice in the cases you just described, like increasing assertiveness or decreasing assertiveness, I fall into the category of needing more of the latter. The decrease rather than the (laughs) increase. Just (laughs) self-disclose. In those cases, it probably has a bit to do with how you feel in that moment and present bias. I would suspect that both of those tendencies are driven by what makes you most comfortable now and overweighting that relative to what you know the long-term benefits are to adjusting the way you interact with, with other people. And so I think the, the best tools we have for that are sort of how can we make it more, a more positive experience in the moment to behave in, in the way that's aligned with your long-term goals it's hard to think of temptation bundling with assertiveness or vice versa, but there may be social cues that we can ask others to give us that will make it more enjoyable to have an interaction. And we can you know, get social support sort of along the lines of doing things with people who we like to make it more fun. And I guess we could use commitment contracts, which would be trying to increase the price of the vice. So if there are others around us who can help us judge when we've you know, not gone far enough in terms of asserting our opinion or gone too far. We may want to ask them to be referees and put money in the line, put stakes in the ground to help make it more feel like a game, which could make it a bit more fun and also create some accountability. So, you know, I think we usually think of using those tools for more objective behavior change, like, you know, I want to quit smoking or I want to save more money, but there's no reason they couldn't also be applied to help us improve interpersonal relationships and interpersonal actions. It's a little bit trickier to think about exactly how you'll measure it, but with a little bit of creativity, I think it's possible.
1: Great. Thank you. So in Rick's question,
0: we're kind of already starting to turn from habits or things people want to change that are like very clear behavioral out in the world stuff to things that are starting to get a little fuzzier in terms of like the behaviorism aspect of them. And particularly, of course, on the podcast, we talk a lot about internal psychological skills, things like being more compassionate toward ourselves or towards other people, and maybe there's an element there in terms of our interpersonal relationships that Rick was already, already talking about in terms of like uh, increasing assertiveness or reducing assertiveness. And in the book, you actually already kind of start to lean into this a little bit, particularly in the chapter on confidence which was, you know, unsurprisingly, one of my favorite ones. And one of the things that you really talk about in that chapter is you talk about basically the placebo effect, but more importantly, how we think about something affects how it is. And so we can start changing how we look at something in order to kind of change our behavior around it. So sort of starting with kind of the big picture part of it, have you thought about how changing those internal components of our, to use a very scary word, of our nature or of what we become like acculturated into might be a little bit different or the same as changing our behavior out in the world. Like, do you think that it kind of works the same way or do you think that there are unique challenges there for people?
2: I unfortunately think it's much, much harder.
0: Yeah, totally agree.
2: I would say the closest I've come to studying this topic is in work that I've done on trying to reduce race and gender bias in organizations, which is Something I don't write about much in the book because, well, you know, it, it's different actually. Yeah. And that's sort of where I'm going to go with this. Yeah. Even though it's uh, the goal is also behavior change for good, right? To make outcomes better and fairer and create a better world in the process. What I have seen time and time again is that trying to change the individual is really difficult. Yeah, One of my collaborators who I think writes beautifully about this, Dolly Chug, who's a professor at NYU and has written a great book called The Person You Mean to Be, she uses sort of the metaphor of like smog that we breathe in throughout our lives that shapes the stereotypes, implicit biases we hold about other people without our conscious awareness, without any intentionality. It's just the way we've come to see the world because of all of the feedback Mm. we've gotten. And it's not often at a conscious level, that makes it really hard to change because it's not as apparent. And so when that is the challenge, what I've seen time and time again is rather than using, you know, I did one big randomized controlled trial, this bias training work, sort of using all the best tools we could, build the best. It was a, I should also note, it was a short-term bias training, just hmm. an online workshop. But using all the best science we had to build it, we found almost no behavior change that ensued a little bit of attitude change, but almost no behavior change. Whereas what we see when we try to change the structures of the environments where people make decisions, then we actually start to see meaningful change. So let me give you an example of what I mean by the structure. Instead of trying to change the person and say, I want you to see things differently or understand how bias affects people and so on, what we've found can be effective is just giving them a different way of making a choice. So for instance, here's one study that illustrates this hiring decisions. Hmm. We're trying to get people to hire a more diverse workforce rather than time and again, making choices to hire only one type of person and prioritizing that group over others. If we give you the opportunity to hire five new employees and each time you get a set of candidates for that job, if those hires are made separately, five separate hires with five separate pools of candidates, you end up with a lot less diversity than if you hire all five people at the same time, each still from the same individual pool, but now you're seeing a set. Oh,
0: that's really interesting. And you can yeah. actually
2: concentrate, oh my goodness, this they all look alike. Mm. I, I want diversity, right? So the structure <laughs> of the choice helps change the way that you behave. And that I think mm. is much more straightforward if we want to shape, than trying to shape attitudes. And so anyway, in general, when we can restructure choices, I think that's a better way to deal with this kind of issue than something like education, mm. which isn't to say I'm against education. I'm very in favor of education. I'm an educator. <laughs> um, but I think it, the in, the kind of investment, I mean, if you think about how long it teaches, you spend a year teaching calculus, actually many years, because there's pre-calculus and so on. You spend, you know, I've been, I have a five and a half year old. I spent the last year trying to help him learn to read. These are the kinds of skills we don't expect to be quick fixes And I think most tough things require that kind of investment, but we often are looking for a solution that'll take an hour. So if we want education to be the solution, we would probably have to make such heavy investments. It may not be feasible. Whereas if we can change the structures of choices, I think we can get further.
1: Mm. Yeah. I I think like so many things in the the world of the mind and relationships, it's a wonderful mess. (laughs) And that's one thing that keeps me drawing me back to it rather than The boring, simple world of quantum mechanics or something like that. But anyway. (laughs) Did
2: you know that I'm married to a physicist?
1: No, I didn't. Oh, that's amazing. (laughs) What a great wrinkle.
2: But we often joke about this. It is amazing how much simpler the models of the universe are than the the models (laughs) of the mind.
1: Oh, yeah, exactly. I was actually talking with somebody recently about a point Freeman Dyson made in a book I read a while ago. He was a great physicist. And he pointed out that in terms of physical phenomena they could be explained by a really short list of fundamental equations and constants. But if you move into biology, it breaks down. You need so many more equations, constants, factors, individual variations. And then when you move into the realm of human lives, it becomes even more complicated still. So it's a wonderful mess. So here we have approaches to change. We could make distinctions perhaps, top down, bottom up, outside in, inside out, and so forth. And it seems to me that, One of the enduring factors of lasting positive change has to do with fundamental, fairly durable internal characteristics like mood, optimism or pessimism, sense of agency or sense of helplessness and so forth. For example, when I feel myself to be vital and big and strong, I naturally want to lift weights more right? So the origin point for a factor of motivation doesn't replace any of the methods you've talked about, but it definitely is a helpful adjunct, has to do with internal attributes and so forth. So I've been very interested in applying the strategies in your book to the general territory of growing stable, lasting, valuable, internal, personal attributes of various kinds. And it seems to me that one of the opportunities is to generalize from particular applications of change strategies to developing more general shifts in things like a sense of efficacy, uh, an approach orientation, a growth mindset, or positive mood. So I wondered what you've, how you help people take particular episodes of the successful application of a change strategy and then use those particular episodes for broader social-emotional somatic learning inside themselves that helps them develop these general qualities of things like a sense of efficacy or a growth mindset?
2: Yeah, it's a fantastic question. And I think one of the really interesting and challenging things about humans is that we tend to be really bad at transporting knowledge or learning from one setting to another. Yeah, It's called analogical reasoning, which is Anyway, like you learn a principle in one (laughs) setting and you can, if you see other problems that resemble that very same one, you can sort of turn the crank and apply. But now you have to take an insight from one part of life to another and like everything falls apart sort of the general finding. So I think this is a really big challenge. And it again, takes me back to the sort of thinking about structurally, what is it that we need to change um, rather than inside the person? I think when I wrote about this in my book, I leaned heavily on social forces as a tool for changing both mindset and confidence and, you know, outcomes generally. And I think one of the reasons that I leaned so heavily on social forces is they essentially are an external structure that you can build that supports more sort of constant feedback as opposed to a one and done quick fix, which I think is just rarely going to work when it comes to something this this tricky as self-confidence. Yeah. So let me dive into like a couple of my favorite tools rather than just speaking in abstractions. One of those social supports that I've seen in research by actually Lauren S. Chris Winkler, who's a brilliant psychologist at Kellogg's, Kellogg School at the Northwestern University. She had this insight that often when we see somebody who's struggling our instinct is to just give them a bunch of advice on how they can improve themselves. We say, you know, oh, well, they're, they're having a tough time. They need to put my arm around them and give them some words of wisdom. But she realized that might be too motivating in that it, it's going to make people feel like you think they must not have any clue what to do. And your two minutes of introspection about this problem are going to somehow, you know, be enough to help them overcome whatever major challenge they've been fighting against for a long time. She noticed that, Actually, a lot of people struggling, if you ask them what might improve their own outcomes, have a pretty good idea and can give you thoughtful answers. But they may not have bothered to really deeply think about this because maybe they never had the confidence that they could make any progress. And maybe no one ever actually gave them real motivation to introspect about it. So she thought maybe we should sort of flip our standard strategy on its head instead of giving people advice when they're struggling. What if we put them in the position of advice giver? thereby showing them that we respect their intellect, that we think they have potential, boosting their self-confidence, leading them to introspect in ways they might not otherwise, and to dredge up insights that they then give to other people. And then if they say it to someone else, it's going to feel hypocritical not to follow the advice themselves. And so she's done a bunch of really creative experiments. I got to be involved in one of them, showing that when we put people in the position of advice giver, it improves their own outcomes. Mm -hmm. So, and when you become a mentor or a teacher or a sponsor to someone else, there's this huge added benefit that it can boost your confidence, change your mindset about what you're capable of. And I think that's one tactic. Uh, And there are other social tactics we can use, right? The people we surround ourselves with who we spend our time with, show us what is possible, build our confidence in what's possible, because we can see if they're similar to us and and it's not such a stretch to imagine, well, they did it, maybe I can do it too. So I think trying to think about different forms of social feedback that can generate confidence changes in mindset, because especially they're going to be self-perpetuating mm. Maybe the most potent way to deal with this rather than just sort of trying to talk ourselves through it or learn something different. If we create that kind of social support, it's it's likely to be more valuable.
1: Mm. Thank you.
0: One of the things that you mentioned kind of along the lines of this topic in the book is that you can track most anything. You can even track something like how virtuous you are on a day-to-day basis. And that's, I think, close to a direct quote, if I'm getting it right. And so if we're talking about these kind of like durable personality characteristics that Rick was mentioning before, if somebody has a desire to become more extroverted or be more of a certain different kind of way out in the world, maybe that's one way to take a look at that. Maybe it's something that you can track. You can look back over the day. You can journal around it or whatever. And then you can use a lot of the practices that Rick has developed over 30 some odd years in terms of the internalization of these experiences. You read it back to yourself. You have an opportunity to feel really good about it. All that good, juicy stuff. So maybe that's another way to kind of like tackle some of these questions. Not perfectly study validated at this point, but hey, it's a good theory as far as I'm aware. Maybe it is, but.
2: there, I mean, there's evidence that tracking improves outcomes because it draws attention to whatever it is that you're trying, you know, it's related to goal setting and why it is effective. One of my favorite studies actually on tracking, which didn't make its way into the book, but probably should have, showed that giving people just basically a ticking tracker for their water usage Increased mm. the rate at which they, um, I'm doing a double negative. It reduced their water use. <laughs> increased <laughs> yeah. the rate at which they conserved, also known as reducing their water use, um, very significantly. And, you know, of course, physical activity trackers, there's different ways to track your physical activity. All of them seem to work, right? You don't have to have like a Fitbit. You can just Track it in other ways, but whatever kind of monitoring you do, because it draws attention to the behavior you're trying to change, is effective. Mm, so the fact mm-hmm. that that works in those settings very strongly supports the idea that you know Ben Franklin, who by the way was the the one who I think first at least famously <laughs> tracked his virtues was probably onto something that there's no reason to think it would work differently for virtue tracking than for water use tracking or or step tracking.
0: Yeah, to give sort of a little like personal anecdote around them, I, I use an app. They're, you know, I'm just naming them because I like the app. It's called Daylio. It's a little mood tracker. You just like on a day-to-day basis, you can track your mood. And when I was going through kind of like a slightly funkier mood period for a minute a couple of years ago, I downloaded the app, I started tracking it and I started just being able to see what tends to lead to the happier days versus the less happy days. I'm a data-driven guy. It was kind of fun to see the bars change and have a move more toward the good ones. And like, you know, of course, we could get into some comorbidity around like, am I incentivized to click the good button more often? How does that, you know, is, is it the cart or the horse? So on and so on. But anyways, I found it like really personally useful for sure. Something I do want to ask you about before we wrap up here, Katie, is a question that we've been like touching in a lot of different ways throughout the episode, kind of dancing around a little bit. And it's a classic question. It's the nature-nurture question, where basically a little while ago you mentioned, wow, it's really hard to change these core aspects of people's behavior. There's a lot of research out there that suggests that ballpark 30 to 60 percent, depending on which study you look at. There are a lot of different, you know, distribution around these things of elements of somebody's personality are like relatively nature based, whether it's about a genetic thing or it's something else that's going on in the mix or it's so early childhood that we have like a very hard time discerning it from nature. And that's really tough. And something that Rick's talked about on the podcast a lot is how Therapy is pretty successful for people, broadly speaking. There are a lot of good studies on the success of therapy, but are we as good as we could be at teaching people how to like actually internalize change over time in a lasting way so that it's not just successful you know, six weeks out, but it's successful six months out or six years out? So it's a big question. But I guess part of what I'm kind of wandering into here is what do you think really helps Have that change stick for people, particularly when we're starting to talk about those more attitudinal issues, things that aren't necessarily easily tracked from a behavioral standpoint.
2: Yeah, it's a great question. And I should also note that I have zero training in personality psychology. My background is as an engineer and then in sort of economics and I came to psychology yeah, late. Totally fair. But I I've learned a tiny bit about this in the in recent years from hanging around Angela Duckworth, who's a frequent collaborator and friend and has studied traits and nature versus nurture to some mm. degree. Yep. And and I love that you said 30 to 60% because I think I've heard her literally say the same thing. Like everything in life <laughs> nice. is thirty somewhere <laughs> between it. 30 and 60% <laughs> yeah. nature Six. and the rest. A third
0: to two thirds, who knows? Yeah. yeah.
2: And the rest nurture, like that's just everything. Like there's no, nothing that isn't like that. Like, you know, your predilection for green vegetables, how fast you scream at someone <laughs> like 30 to 60%. <laughs> Um, another, by the way, really interesting thing she observed to me that I didn't realize is that when you're trying to look at um, individual differences in, in a trait like self-control, which I think is super relevant to behavior change in a lot of these attitudinal features. Yeah, totally. We're almost as different from ourselves across domains as we are from other people. Mm. And I think that's another really interesting feature of human nature is that these things that we think of like... I'm really self-controlled when it comes to my work. but I'm not very self-controlled when it comes to yelling at my son. <laughs> like I'm not, I'm really like, I have no trouble making sure I get all the things done this week that are on my to-do list, but like yeah. holding my temper, It you know, <laughs> when he's driving me nuts, I just, I can't do it very well. So anyway, I think that's another really interesting thing to note. Okay. So I went a little off topic. You're interested in...
0: No, I think that was actually like a really great thing to emphasize. <laughs> it's
2: like my brain went there.
0: Yeah, yeah. Just in terms of that, that point that even these personality characteristics or behavior characteristics that we think of as being consistent and durable inside of a person may not be across domains. So just because we're like a, a very... Type A personality in one environment does not mean that we lean that way in these other environments, or maybe we overlean that way in these other environments, to maybe use your example a little bit.
2: To our detriment.
0: <laughs> yeah, totally. But go ahead.
2: So in terms of durable behavior change, I, as I sort of relate in the book, I, I spent maybe a decade looking for the Holy Grail and convinced that there, there must be tools that were sort of this, if you just applied them temporarily, they would change us forever more. And after a while, after a lot of failure and a really great conversation with a doctor, <laughs> um, not, not, not a psychologist, a medical doctor, I, I came to see his point of view. And his point of view was that we shouldn't actually expect behavior change to be sort of a one and done. And that there's two kinds of medical treatments we give for physical disease, right? There's the chronic condition that you're diagnosed with, where, you know, we learn you're diabetic, we don't give you insulin for a month, take you off it and expect you to be cured. And then of course, there's the temporary condition, sort of like, you know, here's a rash, here's some ointment for it, come back in a week, it'll be gone. Um, Those are the two, if those are the two types of medical conditions, then when we think about behavior change, we've constantly been looking for the ointment, the quick fix, And probably we should be thinking of most behavior changes more akin to a chronic disease in that the kinds of challenges that prevent us from achieving our goals and successfully changing and things that we've been talking about in this conversation, things like, you know, tendency to be impulsive, present biased, the tendency to fall back on habits, the tendency to lack the motivation we might need to sort of get started those things don't really go away if you address them once. Mm. They, they're they just part of human nature. And so if we think more about any kind of change journey as one that is going to require a constant attention to whatever obstacles might come up as opposed to a, a quick fix type of journey, then we're probably going to do a lot better at change. And I think that's true when it comes to the kind of change I've typically studied, which is, you know, how do we get people to make better financial decisions that are going to set them up for successful retirement? How are we going to get people to make healthier choices about what they eat and whether they're physically active and so on? How do we get students to study harder so that they'll get better grades in school? I think it's going to very clearly apply to those kinds of choices. But as we just discussed, there's no reason to think that the internal challenges we face around building our confidence becoming more assertive or less assertive, depending on what our needs are, changing a personality trait to be more extroverted. I don't see any reason to expect that would be terribly different, but I'm really curious what you think about that diagnosis. If you agree that thinking about this, these as chronic challenges that we're going to want to attend to continuously rather than expect sort of a light switch result is right. You think in that domain,
1: I think what you've said about individuals, individual domains, needing individual strategies, uh, is really, really right. And there's a lot of variation. And I guess I'm, you know, I'm in the psychology change business, have been for a long, long time, starting with changing myself uh, in pretty far-reaching ways, going back to being pretty young. And, and and I've seen on the one hand, many people who don't change very much. And I have to say that much of the time, I also observe a lack of effort and they, they go together. So I, I think your point is, correct in some sense that a lot of the time we need more of a treatment than a cure. (laughs) You know, if a cure is a one-time fix, as it were, we're, we have to to hang in there with it, you know, on the one hand. On the other hand, I do think, um, and you would know better than me, I've been told this comes from Peter Drucker, the four stages of learning, unconscious incompetence, conscious incompetence, conscious competence, and then unconscious competence, when we truly have made the change. And a variation of that comes from Milarepa, a great Tibetan teacher, who said regarding his life: "In the beginning, nothing came. In the middle, nothing stayed. In the end, nothing left." So he had moved into that fourth stage from Drucker of conscious of unconscious competence. So I'm pretty hopeful that that fourth stage is actually possible. That I know a number of people who've turned a corner, and. They never got bothered by that thing again, or they never did that thing again, or they never drank again, and it wasn't that hard, or they maintained a fundamental practice of exercise, and they could really stick with it. I've known people like that, and I think that it's really worth studying them. How do they actually do it, right, those particular people? And I do think at the heart of it, they find a way to relate the behavioral change to some kind of enduring internal change that feels good to them that feels good to them. And then they generalize from there. What do you think about that?
2: I think the closest thing to what you're describing that I've seen in the literature on behavior changes habit and the fact that we we truly can practice a habit effortfully for a time, build a skill, and then it becomes automatic and there's not an effortful need anymore. I think that doesn't You know, not everything can be turned into a habit, but some things certainly can be. And that is a, you know, there's good reason that there's a lot of best-selling books about the power of habit and atomic habits, because when we can turn something on autopilot is a very powerful tool. I think think we sometimes over-rely on it and expect everything to be habitual Mm. or be capable of solving with a habit. But when we can, I think it's a beautiful thing.
1: Yeah. And here I'm talking about habits of the heart lasting, durable internal shifts, including about things like bias, for example, certainly bias of a certain kind.
2: Certainly bias that's at the conscious level where you're deliberately obstructing someone is the kind of thing that I would expect we can change.
1: Yeah, that's right. Becoming more capable of regulating implicit bias, for example, or you know, generally becoming someone who just is fundamentally more just happier, or let's say even somebody who feels truly like their life has purpose every day. To shift from what's the point to feeling like your life really does have purpose every day, you know, as a habit of the heart, if you will. So I guess, uh, you know, from my perspective, A, I think it's hard. B, I think effort really makes a difference. Character counts as well as skill and luck, (laughs) you know, and and some genetic helpfulness. And also lasting transformation is really possible. And I think honestly, uh, the methods you've teach and research are extremely skillful in that regard. And it's been a pleasure, truly a pleasure to be able to talk with you.
2: Thank you for having me. This has been really fun for me too. And I've learned a lot.
1: That's awesome. Thank
0: you so much, Katie. It's been really fantastic. So today we had the pleasure of speaking with Katie Milkman. Katie is a professor at Warden, and she wrote a wonderful book, How to Change. We started with a big-picture question. Why is it so hard for people to change? And Katie's really identified these various blocks to change that are common across people. They're things like forgetfulness or procrastination, not having enough confidence in ourselves, or maybe even being a little held down by the environments that we surround ourselves with. And she's identified a number of strategies, which she calls change strategies, that help people overcome those various blocks— An example of one of these is what came up a few times in the conversation, Temptation Bundling, when you attach a thing that you really enjoy to something that you don't enjoy so much. To return to the chronic example that Rick gave over this podcast episode, he attaches consuming political Twitter to his daily run on the treadmill, and that's been really successful for him. Other things that Katie recommends in her book are things like gamification, in other words, turning things we want to do into little games that we can win, surrounding ourselves with people who are going to support us in the development of a new habit. In other words, attaching ourselves to people that we would like to be more like rather than like to be less like. And then also we can take advantage of laziness in some ways. We don't really like spending a lot of effort, so maybe there are some ways that we can sculpt our surroundings to support certain kinds of behaviors. And one of the examples she gives in the book is using all of your executive control, all of your top-down control around decision-making when you're at the store shopping for food and just buying things that you know are going to be relatively healthy for you. So then when you go to the pantry, you don't actually have to make a choice between a healthy and a less healthy option. Your only real choice are the healthy ones. We then talked for a little while about positive versus negative motivations. When people are beginning a new behavior, they're often motivated by one of two things. Either kind of positive ends, like having a growth mindset and wanting to be a better person for those reasons, or negative ends. They're afraid of some punishment, some bad thing in the future that might occur to them. And Katie drew a really interesting distinction. A lot of the times what has been found in the research is that those negative motivations tend to inspire people to make a change. But they're not necessarily as sustainable long-term as the positive motivations. And this really actually kind of cued in, in my reading of it, to something that Rick was saying later when we talked about changing internal durable traits. How Rick said in his experience working with people in therapy, the people who really changed their behavior out in the world also changed some deep aspect of themselves, and much of the motivations there were positive. The motivation itself was placed off of the desire to be different in some way and all of the benefits that would bring into that person's life. We spent much of the second half of the conversation talking about building psychological strengths, maybe the fuzzier skills, things like becoming more compassionate to ourselves or to other people as opposed to really clear behavioral stuff out in the world. And Katie was transparent that that's not always the super-duper focus of her research, but nonetheless, she had some good recommendations and brought in some material from the book. One of the lines from How to Change that really stuck with me personally is how we think about something affects how it is. And this is basically the placebo effect, but scaled-up, big-picture, to all of our decisions, our mindset, everything. If we can change how we think about something, we can often change our relationship to it in really meaningful ways. We closed with some talk about essentially nature versus nurture and how much can people actually change long-term. Katie, I don't want to put words in her mouth, but maybe was a little bit more skeptical about durable change inside of a person than Rick was where Katie has a real systems emphasis in her work. What can we do to surround people with systems that lead them to have different behaviors? This makes sense in terms of her background as an engineer, doing behavioral economics, and so on. Whereas Rick, as a therapist, has a little bit more of maybe that internal locus of control to throw out some lingo. He really believes that people can change their traits in very durable ways over time, And that often there are people who are really successful in that. And we can look to those people as examples of what might actually be possible for us over time. I'd like to close just by saying that I really enjoyed talking with Katie on this podcast episode. It was a ton of fun. She was a phenomenal guest. And the reason that it probably felt like I had done a lot of reading on the book was because I had done a lot of reading on the book. It was a great book. I was very happy to read it. And I actually reached out to her after reading it the first time and just thinking that it was a phenomenal piece of material. So full endorsement from me. Um, If you're interested in these topics, you really should check out the book. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it. If you would take a moment to like it and subscribe to it through the platform of your choice, it really does help us out. If you'd prefer to watch these episodes rather than listen to them, we're posting most of them now on my YouTube as well. It's youtube.com slash C slash Forrest Hansen, and you can normally find the link to the YouTube video in the description of the podcast of the day. If you'd like to support us in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for the cost of just a couple cups of coffee a month, you can support the show and you'll receive a bunch of bonuses in return. Also, if you've been enjoying the content that we share here, but you'd really like to do more of a deep, focused dive into Rick's work, he has a bunch of courses and programs available online. And listeners of the podcast can get 25% off any of those offerings by going to his courses page, going to the checkout, and entering the code BEINGWELL25. More than anything, thanks for listening to the podcast. It's the absolute best way that you can support our work. It has been so gratifying for me personally to watch the podcast grow over time. And I'm just honestly really touched that after however many years it's been here, three or four years, people are still tuned in and listening to us every week, which is just totally crazy to me, to be honest. And it's been so great to develop such an awesome base of listeners who really care about this stuff. So until next time, thanks for listening.